but it's not just for that, right? And that that's the slight difference. Because I think you you if you just get addicted to early revenue growth, you have to believe that your first business model, that when you started, that you nailed it and that there's no better model out there. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have John Berkowitz, CEO of Ojo Labs. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so you're tuning in from Florida, and um, yeah, how how is it there? It's good. It's warm. Uh, sun shining. Palm tree leaves are blowing, and we're in a locked in our house. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, it's also beautiful here in Austin. I was there yesterday, so I know that, and I miss home very much. Yeah. Did you get to go into that sweet place you guys have on South Congress? I to enjoy my very sweet, very empty digs. <laughs> enjoy my view of which nobody is currently enjoying there on South Congress. But yes. How many square feet do you guys have there? About 13,000. We, we actually had the house next door. So there's like that white traditional house right next to Equinox. We had that as well pre-pandemic. And I knew that an office would be a part of our culture long term. So I held on for dear life to this real estate, but I could not rationalize holding on to all of it. So the several thousand square feet of additional space there, we got rid of. Then we have another 15,000 and probably a little less in Minneapolis, probably 15,000 in California. Hundred thousand in St. Lucia, so we got a, we got a, we got a bunch of space. Wow! <laughs> and I'm curious, how much of it is occupied right now? Oh, none of it. None. Literally none. No people yeah. go eat. Like, and what if people want to go in? Too bad, so sad. In St. Lucia, new higher classes because we have so much. The vast majority of our three hundred and fifteen or so people that work in St. Lucia. Majority work from home, but new hire classes and specific roles. We have enough space that we can make it really safe. We are there and we are in the process of determining, reopening, and giving people that want to get back into the office access. But right now, you need special permission for, you know, meetings or, or something to go into any office outside of our St. Lucia office. Wow. <laughs> you're hard a lot decision. I think all CEOs are making these hard decisions. Well, you, yeah, uh, you're a lot stricter than me. I'm like, if they want to go in, go in. Like, uh, yeah, we're paying yeah. for all this space. People are in their studio apartments at home. Like, why are we saying no? And uh, yeah, the HR people. I don't judge you on it. <laughs> I started early and often operating under the belief that I would rather be conservative and like extra paranoid and, and kind of health conscious and regret it than, than the other way around when it came to 
employees and I made that decision in February last year. And like, if you go through it for a year, at the end, you don't want to kind of let your guard down. I think that's, yeah. <laughs> You're like, I've gone this far. That's how I feel. We're, we're I've gone this far. Let's get to the finish line. Maybe I'm being over conservative, but I don't want to have uh, anybody, any of my people's getting sick on my on my watch. That that does that that scares me. No, no, I, I I feel you. So you know, it's interesting. You've always come across as a New Yorker to me, <laughs> right? Uh, you're like, why, Carolyn? I I wonder why. But you, you know, you grew up in Connecticut, and your dad was on also an entrepreneur. And so I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your upbringing and, you know, the environment in which you were raised. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think that New York is a, is a suburb of New Haven, Connecticut, uh, where I grew up. That's why, you know, really New Yorkers just have a slight adjusted New Haven accent. But yeah, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. As you said, my father, my family business was a commercial construction company, Red Rooster Construction. I had all of the Brewster logos and Brewster items all throughout my childhood startups before it was startup cool. Um, and we, you know, we rode the wave, rode the waves of uh, commercial construction in the in the uh, '80s, '90s, and 2000s. Uh, there were some pretty high highs and some pretty brutal lows. The you know gas crisis and a lot of the things that happened caused real kind of pain in the construction, many industries, construction was one of them. So I had a childhood that business was very tied into our existence. I could like track the economy based on presents under the tree and under the menorah. I celebrated both holidays, strangely enough. And like, you know, I I was very acute to the success real time of the business based on my father's mood, you know, what resources were, were not available to our family. I look back on the period with great love and appreciation for it because I, you know, attribute a lot of my journey to that early exposure to business and entrepreneurship. But you know, it wasn't without its uh, hard times for sure. Really cool though, right? To just get to experience firsthand what it's like to run a small business. So, you know, I, I find the story of starting Yodel very interesting. But, you know, you went to college and, and where'd you go to school, John? I went to George Washington University in D.C. Okay. And you graduated, right? And um, instead of getting a job like, you know, most people, you decided to start, to start Yodel. So how did you get the idea? Yeah. Well, first, to be clear, I tried to get a job. I did. I think I gave it a college effort. I like showed up with a hangover to an office in Northern Virginia for a recruiting firm that was hiring for a company called JC Deco, which is, if you travel, which you definitely do, all bottom of all the billboards it's in the airport, it says JC Deco. It's a global advertising firm. And I was applying for a sales job, which seemed like in like my head, I was like, I think I'd be good at this. You would be. You would. <laughs> the recruiting uh, I would be good for it. And basically was like, yeah, go find a different career. And I was like, all right, screw this. We're going to do something else. And then one thing led to another. And they, uh, a childhood friend kind of pitched me on this idea of 
He had wrote a business plan to help his father's car dealership move from the yellow pages to Google, which was a novel idea in 2005. And essentially, the, the idea was, you know, I deeply understood the importance of customers to my family business. My father was not getting found on Google. He was you know, thinking about the yellow pages. Same was my other co-founders, some of small business owners whose parents were in the yellow pages while we were searching the internet. And so we're in college, you know, I might have used a yellow pages as like, you know, a doorstop or a weapon or like a fly spotter. I never looked at it to find a local service provider. And so there's a very clear gap of the internet, you know, it's a thing, it's here to stay, it's not a fad. Most of the money in advertising was going to getting like eBay and Coca-Cola and all of them optimized on Google. But we had really kind of intimate experience with small businesses. And at that time, you know, the only people that really knew there was a really big business serving small businesses were the Yellow Pages, right? They had a hundred billion dollar racket. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It was such a racket because, you know, my first job, and I've told you this, was selling ads in the yellow pages. But I did not sell them for the yellow pages that were the actual phone company. I sold them for a competitor yellow page company to the phone company. That's a yellow book? Were you working for yellow book or who was it? It was called Valley Yellow Pages. It was a California based yellow page company. You know, we were up and down in California, I think 13 different markets. It was a small company. But I mean, they crushed it. And uh, I started there in 03. And um, yeah, but it was like, we'd have to go in and they're like, wait, what's the difference between your book and the regular yellow pages? And it's like, can you tell the difference? (laughs) You need to be in both now. Yeah, the difference, the difference is you need to pay price. I, you know, I, I exactly, exactly. Uh, well, honestly, we ran a very similar play. We were like, hey, you think you should be in the yellow pages? Turns out, have you heard of Google? Well, we need to be on Google. And that was, that was essentially the pitch that launched a ginormous business. Well, yeah, because it, it was funny because at that time in 03, people were like, well, I'm kind of thinking people are looking, you know, online for stuff now. <laughs> it's like Yellow Pages tried. They built like directories and and then they started getting into what we were doing and doing Google advertising. There was just too much of a resistance to give up on the book. There's too good money with such insane margins, right? Like those are 99% margins. So you print paper and you charge two thousand dollars for a single sheet of paper. Uh-huh. You drop it off one time a year. And people, because we used to bill per month. I mean, for a full page, it was like 10 grand a month. People were paying like $120,000 for an ad in a book that people, like, I guess, and, and then we would have these tracker numbers. So you could see, like, if people called that number versus a different number. So, yeah, obviously, genius idea, 2005. Um, hey, people might want to find things on the internet. <laughs> No brilliance in us. (laughs) But what I found to be really interesting was, even though it was a you know digital, you know online media company, essentially advertising, the sales process and what you guys did was very much similar to the old school yellow page model. Yeah, we went out and um, 
I mean, we just banged the doors, you know, and, and it kind of evolved. The first year of the company, it was knock on every business in the geographies that we were in, which were Philadelphia and Washington, DC. And then we started going to trade shows. We started realizing dentists and dermatologists. We started finding segments and then going to areas where they made a lot of sense. Also, Yellow Pages did that as well. And we, you know, we met a lot of people in the Yellow Page industry and paid attention to what they were doing to acquire and retain customers for sure. As we matured, we realized that the there was a belief held very true, and, and you'll remember this, that you had to be in person for Yellow Page sales. Like there was just no possible way you could get the renewal over the phone because, like, you know, it had to be you were coming back in next year. That's expensive. Outside sales forces are, are pretty inefficient, especially when you're in the small business space. And so there was a lot of cost in those sales forces. And so maybe two years into the company, we started testing uh, an inside sales force. And it started by saying, all right, you know, I had a, at that point, I had a team in Boston and we were like, yeah, the inside sales force, my co-founder Ben was running that. I was like, he's not going to touch us. You guys take the perimeter. So Anywhere 45 minutes out of downtown Boston, you guys hit over the phone. So they started closing those. And we wouldn't do that because we didn't want the windshield time. But then they just started creeping in. And they started being able to show like, no, they can close way more efficient over the phone. And there was really no difference in churn. And that really changed the trajectory of the company. Uh, For local sales, within uh, probably about 12 months, we went from fully outside to... At what point was an 850 person inside sales team making a million cold calls a month? The model changed, but you know I think that's a, that's the advantage of being the the new kids on the block is we didn't we tested the thing that everybody else just said was a fact. There's no way you're going to be able to to gain these customers and retain them in a call center model, which has better economics but is going to have higher churn. And we tested it, and I think it was a big advantage. There was a lot of that along the journey that kind of like, you know, trust, but verify. Well, I mean, I remember that when I was working there, it was like, you were supposed to just show up (laughs) at the company with like no appointment or anything. And so I was like really like outside the lines when I would call to set a meeting with people ahead of time instead of just showing, like pulling up and walking in with the book. Waiting, (laughs) waiting for the person's wedding. Or like we would go get our nails done at the Manny Petty places that would, (laughs) I mean, and half the people would like work one day a week. But, you know, they, <laughs> and they, it was just like, there was zero, I mean, the amount of autonomy that we had was just insane. And, you know, when you're talking about this in-person model, I think it's super relevant to what's happening today, right? Because, you know, everyone was really forced through, obviously, the pandemic to start doing things differently, right? And I mean, with bets in particular, I still, I, I tell people here in Austin, obviously you're an exception and you have some good reasons, but I won't take a phone meeting or a Zoom meeting with anyone here in Austin unless they have a very good reason. And I still truly believe in, in building relationships in person and that's how we met. And But 
you know, for candidates, for example, like at bets, you know, we're able to really have a much more efficient process instead of having people have to come into our offices, do the whole rigmarole. And it, it's not always a great experience either for them, you know, to, if you're, you know, passively looking for a job, have to go to the recruiting company, you know, even though we have, you know, amazing clients, et cetera. So, you know, I think that that inside sales model versus the going out into the field and you know just showing up on people's doorstep makes sense. And and I think now so many more businesses, so many businesses are so much more efficient because they were forced into doing it. And now I think business will change, you know, a lot forever. Do you think you'll do 24 months from today a good amount of Zoom or whatever favorite platform is of relevance then? Will you do the the kind of virtual screening and engagement? Do you think that's a lasting change for you guys? I think so. I mean, I think the first thing that we're going to bring back, and I actually hosted an event last night for... I invited you for the Build uh, Virtual Gala. And I host an in-person event here in Austin. It was a personal event. Obviously, I invited a lot of people I know through work. But you know, I hosted it as myself, not as Beth's recruiting. <laughs> um, and... Which is interesting that, you know, there is a difference. And so I think the first thing we're going to bring back are events and where people can come meet in person and then meetings following the events. If it's on the client side, I think we're going to do and venture capitalists, et cetera. I think those will happen more in person when the time is right. Just to, and I think for the, the talent out there, I think most of that's going to remain virtual. Okay, so Yodel, you guys change the model. You have a million cold calls a month. And, you know, you're moving and grooving. And, you know, I, I, I would love to hear more about the evolution. Right? I mean, you were running this company for 10 years, which in, uh, in tech world is like, you know, a century. Yeah. Well, you know, I think actually when you look at the shapes of businesses, like 10 years is the, that is the average of meaningful businesses that have success. It's like, it takes 10 years. I don't know why it ends up being that way. But it is. But yeah, we we picked a huge industry. We were with some giant players in it. And we attacked it with hunger and kind of relentless pursuit and got addicted to the growth and the process of winning and wanting up yourself every year and showing up on, you know, the top of all the ink lists. And you know, you, you just got into that mode of winning. We we started sincerely with the attitude of helping small businesses and along the way we're 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 pretty committed to it. Um but the interesting thing about Yodel, which is different than my company now, is growth of the company was as big, if not bigger, than like the mission and like helping the small business owner. It's not the people like there were great humans at Yodel that that really cared about our customers and challenged the the status quo and challenged each other and pushed the envelope on how to really try to make things better. But the winning and the kind of like addiction to revenue growth had a had a profound uh, effect on kind of the trajectory of the company. And it was fun for sure. You mentioned that's different now at Ojo. How so? Yeah, I don't know if I'm older now or more enlightened or less crazy. I just think growth for growth's sake is not that interesting. Like I want to provide value to the world. And I've seen a lot of great businesses have really great revenue growth and then die. Uh, and I think that happens more times than not. And so I think about 
sustainability and value. And in fact, had thought about the consequence a lot of getting addicted to revenue and setting expectations on it. So for the early part of this year, we would resist revenue. We would buy a company and slow their revenue and cut off revenue streams. We would resist customers paying us. We would turn them into investors because I didn't see it as the long-term sustainable revenue. Now, but I'm a capitalist. This is not a nonprofit. <laughs> you know, as much as I am hell-bent on, on doing good in the world, I am also hell-bent on returning shareholder value. Now we are in the stage where we have a business model that aligns with the mission and just scaling them together just produces outsized growth, revenue, EBITDA, everything kind of flows, but it's not just for that, right? And that that's the slight difference. Because I think you you if you just get addicted to early revenue growth, you have to believe that your first business model that when you started, that you nailed it and that there's no better model out there because it's really hard to say, you know what? Yeah, I can go from 40 million last year to, to 80 million next year, but I'm not gonna because I really want to move to a more customer-centric model, which would be more profitable, but we're going to take this step back. Growth companies very rarely do that. Yeah. And, and it does you... You raised money and all your investors just want to see the, the revenue stack up. Up and to the right. That. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we, we were fortunate that I think we were disciplined in the early years of Ojo, which afforded us the right to figure out the right sustainable long-term models and that we've aligned ourselves to investors that are seeking long-term value versus monthly and you know quarterly metrics. Uh, Absolutely. And... and- and you know, I know we've gotten onto the Ojo topic, but one thing that you mentioned earlier was when you were running Yodel, right? That there were a lot of other players in the space. And we didn't talk about this on the call or the, you know, prep or whatever it is that we call it. But, you know, an, another big player that you know comes to mind for me, and I'm curious who the other competitors are that you uh, is Yelp. And and your mission was truly to help small businesses. And you know, we've been fortunate on Yelp to have really great reviews. But, you know, I do think that a lot of small businesses were very victimized by the Yelp model. And I'm curious, you know, from your point of view, being a competitor, right, you you would consider Yelp to have been one of your competitors? No, what's really interesting is there was like, I don't know if ever in my Yodel journey would I have called Yelp a competitor. There was a time when we were like, Serious financial partners, and we were reselling them, and they're reselling us, and we had business dealings, and there was you know, a lot of interconnectivity. There was times when we probably would have said you should use us versus Yelp, but most of the time it was a portfolio. Yes, you're going to need to manage your reviews and their technology. We're going to do that. Was, you know, we we ended up partnering with Yext, who was all about distributing. Yelp and everybody else, we believed our consumers should exist on Yelp and partake in Yelp. But we also went down the review management path and how do you provide value to navigate the problem that you're talking about? Look, I mean, the the reality is, I don't know how much... I'm, I'm very hard on myself first, but then I'm hard on my partners. And I don't know how much... Were there bad stories of small businesses being victimized? Yeah, but the truth is a lot of small businesses 
are poorly run and 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 have bad consumer experiences. And what Yelp did was shine a light on that. And the businesses that leaned into it, I think, got better and greater. And the ones that tried to hide it and manipulate it, I think you're protecting consumers. And you know, there is, I'm sure, some bad decisions that I probably would have talked smack about back in the day around pay to play and who got favored treatment and who didn't. You know, in the management of that ecosystem, but on the whole, you know, I, I think I think they did a good thing to surface consumer content to help consumers make better decisions, but also to help businesses improve themselves. That would be my. Yeah, you know, if you, it's hard to know what I would have said if you had asked me when I was in the game. Right. Fighting. I know. Oh, now, like 10 years later, not, you know, whatever, <laughs> objectively looking back <laughs> six years later. That's John 2021. John 2008, maybe a little bit more aggressive in his opinions on Yelp. Right. Well, and, you know, it is interesting, right? Because, you know, when you look at those sites, like, you know, everyone, you go like to the one-star reviews. <laughs> what did this person have to say? So, you know, you talked about the, you know, addiction to growth, the awards, the, you know, winning mentality, kind of winning at, at all cost culture. And, you know, you guys ended up having, you know, very, you know, what I would consider a pretty huge exit at that time. and. You know, I'm curious to know, you know, what that journey was like for you and your co-founders to you know make the decision to end up selling the company, and did it happen sooner than you wanted, later than you wanted? What did that all look like for you guys? Yeah, in 2005, we expected by 2009 that we would have 800 million dollars in revenue. I think that's what our early charts told us. So that's ambitious. uh, It did not not happen as quickly as we imagined. And we were all in different places. There was was kind of three of us. And obviously, we we brought in kind of a bunch of early people. So the the founding team were in all different places on when and if to sell. Should we go public? Should we not go public? One of the co-founders was less aligned in the later years on the trajectory and left and kind of doubted some of the decisions. Then we filed to go public. We filed our S1, which we had a great business. And we rallied the company to that. The whole company knew we filed the S1. It was a massive event that we were all excited about. We talk about it in the, you know, at, at the company level. We had more than a thousand employees at the time. We had the ticker symbol yo. So cool. And bankers had painted a picture of very large numbers. Uh, this will sound familiar to people as they take their SPAC phone calls now. But the bankers were telling us very huge numbers. And then a couple IPOs before us were less kind of successful than people thought. And so then there was this idea of like, well, if you go out. There's things you might want to change in your business model prior to going out. And if you go out, like you might you know, miss a quarter, which will mean your valuation will be cut. And so we had said, okay, like, well, we'll we won't go out now. We'll go out in a couple quarters. And that was, in my opinion, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's people on the Yodel journey that would disagree with me. In my opinion, that was one of the worst mistakes we've made because, you know, we should have definitely gone for it because even the most conservative numbers of what it would have looked like in the public market 
were better than our final end state. And the reason that was is when we ended up going in, we miscalculated how much we had made an exit our North Star and how many people had been doing unsustainable hard work for a long period of time chasing that, that when we removed the finish line in sight, people's, you know, they were just got burned out. And so we got sure and we lost our way a little bit. Culture took a hit. And then, you know, we we had a, a, a very nice exit two years later, but it wasn't the company and trajectory. It's really just because we lost we lost our way. If we had been more addicted to the mission, we would have said, look, S1 public markets, you know, someone buys us. That's just a means to the end. And like we're gonna vet it and we're gonna consider it, but keep your eyes on the prize. And we would have we would have continued doing the magic that that company had built. That was a miscalculation. Now, easy to look back and say that, right? If if that had been a successful IPO, it would have that trajectory and the the momentum we had because we had made it that event probably would have paid dividends. But in hindsight, I think um, you don't want to be marching towards an outcome. I think that's a very dangerous way to run a business. I mean, you can. There are small businesses and certain types of business that you just build up and build them to sell them. And like you might not get maximum value, but you can have great wealth creation. I, you know, I don't want to knock that. People do that, and I, and I respect them for it. But I think when you're building big companies, you got to figure out how to make sustainable value. Absolutely. Now, who did you end up selling the company to? A company called Web.com, who publicly traded web hosting company, kind of a conglomerate of... Like a GoDaddy type thing? GoDaddy competitor. Um, They would have been deeply offended by being called... uh, A GoDaddy competitor? No longer exist. They no longer exist. (laughs) Uh, Web.com sold to private equity, got chopped up. So anybody there that's listening now is doing something else. But yeah, Web.com bought us. (laughs) Well, I mean, those Super Bowl commercials that GoDaddy did back in the day. GoDaddy outmarketed them, that is for sure. Nobody, I didn't know what it was until I was like, what does that company do? Okay. I I think our web, all of our URLs are registered with them. So you sell to web.com. And you know what, what I found to be interesting was you started Yodel while you were, you know, you, what do you call it? You said you, you, I double dipped. Double dipping. Yeah. I knew. You know, it's oftentimes you're selling a company, it does not happen overnight. I knew that I wasn't going to stay on. The web.com culture wasn't for me. It didn't make sense. I didn't have the same confidence in chasing the vision long term. And so I was super clear like, I am going to move out, but I'm also not going to leave my baby high and dry. Right. So I had a pretty large team at Yodel to the very end. Um, and then began the Ojo journey. So there was kind of a year overlap of two offices, two roles. And uh, you know, my, my Yodel partners were super supportive of it. And I stayed on to do the things that I could be valuable on without being you know, too relevant to the company where that I would have been impacted the, the exit. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think Web.com wouldn't have liked me. They probably would have fired me in like the first like, six weeks. I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm like ambitious and like want to do good stuff. That's not their stuff. 
You have all kinds of ideas. Yeah, <laughs> How, we can make this place so much better. There are some smart people at web.com. I'm not, I'm not talking. Well, they bought you guys. So uh, clearly yeah, think, geniuses. And they got a hell of a price in my opinion. So, you know. Right. So how did you come up the, with the idea for Ojo? Yeah, the idea of Ojo. So, you know, rewind a little bit. In 2011, living in New York City, Yodel buys a company in Austin, Texas called Profit Fuel. Profit Fuel founded by a brilliant entrepreneur, huge personality, you know, master chess player, strategic genius, inside sales, like mastermind, had built a incredible culture, 220 person company in Austin that had one of the more, uh, the most productive call centers that we had ever seen. We didn't believe the metrics. We thought he was a total scam artist at first as he had run this. He had just built technology and process in a super unique way to make their call center function selling SEO to small businesses. So they're just growing wildly fast, profitably. We were bigger, venture-backed. He was bootstrapped. We were certain we were the best sales force in the industry. We were all geniuses. No chance this little company in Austin, Texas could run circles around us. My goodness, were we wrong. Only good part is that we were humble enough to recognize it and we acquired him and this company, Fuel. I came to Austin in 2011 for six weeks and whatever, we're now a decade later and I haven't left. That is one part David Rubin, one like nine parts my wife, and then like maybe, you know, a tenth of a part uh, <laughs> uh, Austin. But yeah, my wife got me to say David Rubin did hold up $1,000 in front of his sales force and say the first person to get John Berkowitz to move to Austin gets this $1,000. The way I met my wife was through one of the people that earned that thousand dollars. So you know, he, David Puppet mastered me. No way. Okay, you have to tell that story. Yeah. No. So yeah, the brilliant young man who works with me at Ojo. He's on the payroll for life because I owe him a lot. But he's also very talented. You know, so David makes this challenge to a bunch of like wildly competitive salespeople. So like over the next couple of trips. It was like if I had been an athlete, I this is what I imagine it feeling like is like, you know, I'm like walking in the hallway and someone's like selling me on why their school, but in this case, Austin's the best thing. Like, if you tried the barbecue, like I'm gonna get you Franklin's and everybody's got the pitch. And then one day I realized my meeting's running late. I'm gonna miss my Friday flight to New York. And one of these guys comes up to AJ, he's like, Hey, I'm going out tonight with my buddy. You wanna come out with us? And I'm like, sure. Like, Right. So, so I'm like, sure, like, whatever, we're going to go out. So we go out and meet him and get the table at a rooftop bar in Austin. And I still think it's there. It was called Royale Rooftop Bar. We ended up actually throwing a, a Yodel holiday party there later on. Anyway, he goes out into the club, brings two women back. Uh, one of them is now in the other room with her four children uh, and uh, my wife. It was her birthday. Uh, we hit it off. And then I, you know, started coming to Austin more. And then um, some point, you know, realized like a year and a half in that I hadn't been back to New York. And was like, holy crap, I moved to Austin. And uh, <laughs> you just never got on the plane back. The rest is history. And at my wedding, we paid the $1,000 to AJ, who very much deserved it. Oh, um, so he never got I, the $1,000 before. He did. He got the He did. He got the 
We got that. Okay. <laughs> Way before yeah. the wedding. I mean, what? what oh, no. I think it was actually after. It's a really good question. Yeah. I, I want to say like it was the wedding. <laughs> it might have been a couple of years. He had to wait for it. Like, you know, well, it wasn't like, you your know thousand dollars. You weren't you the one. Game. When is it official? Right. <laughs> like it's a recruiting position. And we're talking an executive hire here. We're talking about a wife. Like this is. This is uh, this is a big one. So you got to make sure. It's no, it wasn't the bet on you it. moving to Austin, not you getting married to somebody in Austin. Yeah, but if, let me be clear: if it didn't work out with her, I would have been back to New York. So <laughs> they had a good. I, I don't know. I think you had a good point. Yeah. So Dave and I hit it off. We grew Yodel, the combined company, from his two hundred. You know, we had no employees at that time of acquisition. The eight hundred and fifty people in Austin. Him and I just built this amazing friendship, huge trust, and you know, and just two entrepreneurs, you know, building a friendship. Like, what do you do? You think of ideas, and so we started riffing on ideas. And uh, at some point, it was kind of like, okay, let's go do this idea. The early idea was all around kind of location-based technology, local decision making, helping consumers find the right thing at the right time. Uh, solving kind of some of these pain points around how consumers made decisions and some of these friend finding networks. Started Map Mojo, which was the founding company name in 2015, and then off to the races on a, a long, strange journey. In terms of the, you know, because obviously it's a real estate technology company, how did you get to there from the original concept? Yeah, and I think this, this is the blessing of the second time, right? Like we, I knew the things that I wanted and and then the things that I just didn't care about, right? And so I spent we spent far more time thinking about our company values in the early days than we did the product itself. And far more about the type of problem we wanted to solve than specifically how we'd monetize it. And we were certain that we wanted to build a company that would be legacy building. We were certain we wanted to build a company we can control our own destiny. We were really kind of obsessed with consumer problems because that felt like better impact, better value creation, better wealth creation. We both, you know, love technology. And we also, I think, have strong opinions about our own and others' decision making. And so these are the themes that kind of in every crazy idea would keep coming up. We then launched in, we in 2015 to kind of test how consumers were making decisions, fired up something called Bot, of which I'm still unable to PayPal my fantasy dues to friends because PayPal still shut me down because we paid the first like 20 people via PayPal from Bot. Apparently like the entrepreneur PayPal doesn't like that, which I'm on. I mean, some slacker and Venmo's connected. So I also can't Venmo you because they own that. <laughs> How about Cash App? Can you use that one? Oh, no. I need to get into that. Now I just go through my wife. And I, I hope they don't find out who my wife is. They might shut that down. Anyway, we didn't want to go build this big, robust technology. We said, we're going to just deploy Bot, which is a text message chat bot to go have conversations with consumers. We didn't think that was a business. We didn't know the product. We thought it was a lean way to engage with consumers to find out how they'd make decisions. This is before Facebook M. This is before the last like big spike in AI fundraising. It was just like a lean way to learn. And we learned something that set us on the trajectory of the company, which was 
consumers would engage at a really high rate with the machine in a way that we realized they wouldn't with human beings. And, it, and we stumbled upon this concept known as the hell zone, which is that feeling when you walk into a clothing store and a salesperson says, may I help you? And you say, no, I'm just looking. You did not go there just to look. You went there for something. And then like 30 seconds later, you look for that person because you're like, where's the pants section? There's <laughs> this feeling of I don't want to be sold until I'm ready to buy. And every consumer has it. Turns out it's a conversation that private equity people and big retailers know deeply in the retail space. It exists everywhere. The bigger the purchase, the longer it is. And so we started solving that technology problem, saying, how do we help consumers get the information they need with an experience like talking to a human being without it being a human being so they'll engage earlier? And then we went on the journey to say, how do we figure out what is the most important problem to solve? And that was an eight-month journey of testing crazy ideas. And then in early 2016, we went all in on real estate because we realized the dynamics of the hell zone, the bigger the purchase, the longer the hell zone. How often will you look at real estate and how long will you do it before you're willing to go see a home with a real estate agent? It could be two years that you're in the just looking versus at Home Depot, it's 30 seconds, right? And so... We realized the technology play would be really interesting in real estate. Real estate also massive industry, super slow moving, huge data sets. Every American wants to buy a home at some point. The data kind of shows. And so we we just said, like, let's move in. We met Chris Heller, who at the time was the CEO of Keller Williams. He was like, this will be magical. Real estate agents would partner with this. This solves a huge problem. There was this other brilliant kind of industry legend, guy named Ken Jenny, who quickly just saw... I mean, at this point, we were talking about this technology in the same week that the CEO of Keller Williams was in our crappy WeWork office. A president from Samsung was in our office. We were talking to executives from Marriott. We, we were thinking about lots of applications. But these two guys, Chris Heller and, and Ken Jenny, just really immediately realized that what we were saying in our solution would solve huge problems in their industry. I don't know if I seduced them into partnering with me or they seduced me into bringing my technology into real estate, but that's where the magic began. And um, we've been all in on real estate, helping people make better decisions since that day in, in 2016. Super cool. Really cool. And you know, it's interesting. I actually... I went to Neiman Marcus the other day and it, it's been like a year since I... Well, I, I mean, I've gone to stores, but not a store like that, you know, where I intentionally showed up like to buy a dress for an occasion. And uh, so, but that was exactly what happened, right? You know, I think about the experience where it's like... The hell zone still exists. I was just thinking when you said it, I was like, oh shit, what if the pandemic killed the hell zone and Carolina just prints in and like hugs the salesperson? And the hell zone's gone. I blowed my mind. Right? No, I think it's even bigger because it's like, you know, you're like, oh, okay. Like there's no other people in there. Like it was so weird shopping and like the store being like, I was the only customer on the whole floor pretty much. I mean, there then some people showed up, but it was very, very empty. And um, so no, I, I felt like, yeah, I was kind of like, no. And then 
of course, you know, we ended up being best friends. And I went on, um, you know, the Neiman Marcus website and gave her all tens and he gave her my cell phone number. And, you know, <laughs> she has one on the hook. Last time, oh no, it was Nordstrom. I had the same thing. And uh, the sales guy was phenomenal. And he like walked me out to the car with my wife and I. It was actually a trip. Me and my co-founder were going to Italy. And uh, he was so good. I knew he was so good when he put this like really amazing pair of leather shoes on me. My wife was like, holy crap, you need those. And she was like, how much do they cost? No, I said, how much do they cost? And I looked down and I just saw his eyes. I was like, damn, he's good. I know he put the most expensive. It was like 600 bucks. But the, the point was that he bought, like, I'm super cheap when it comes to close, that he put the most, he just landed them on me. And he like perfectly didn't ask to put them in there. He walked me into the car and then he became, after, fast forward three years later, he was the top producing sales manager at Yodel because in that parking lot, I was like, you are not working for Nordstrom tomorrow morning. You're coming to Yodel, my friend. Oh, that's amazing. Built up a very big career at, uh, at Yodel. Oh, that's so good. I love recruiting people in the wild. Like, it's seriously. I sales people, it's like you, you have to tell them. Like, well, totally. That's your ground. I've hired people that were waiting, you know, on me at restaurants and you know, all kinds of stuff. And you know what? I actually thought about this the other day. I think I'm going to get business cards again. Like they kind of went away, and now I'm like, I don't want to be the cheesy person handing out my business card to people. At the same time, it's like, you know, I, I think they might have a use again <laughs> in the world, especially when you're hired. You just need a QR code on the back of it to add your content to it. Ooh. So it's like, you know what I mean? Like, like that actually would be helpful, right? Like, then it feels like rational, just like take a picture, add it to the content. That, that would be nice. I would like Yeah, it, totally. You know? Rather than being at an event and like you're handing your phone around, you're doing all these, you know. Totally. You're pulling like, out your phone. Like bump phones now, but like, oh, I like bump I like that app. Or... <laughs> I don't, is that still around? I don't know. Well, anyway, I would think we're coming up on time. I could talk to you forever and I can't wait for you to get back to Austin so we can meet up in person and just been so fun to hear your story. But, um, you know, any final words of wisdom, pieces of advice or, you know, forward looking stuff you'd like to share with our audience as we wrap up? Words of advice. Look, building companies is super hard and it is easy I think people aren't authentic enough. Entrepreneurs are not authentic enough. Some are. Most are not. On just how damn hard it is what you and I and others do. And I think new entrepreneurs come in and feel like they're not cut for it. Some of them are not. Like To be clear, if the whole world was crazy entrepreneurs, we'd get nothing done, right? So we can't. We, we, there are a lot of people that are not fit for it. But I, but I think sometimes that we're, we're not as honest about just like the disconnected parts and the mistakes along the way and the very dark moments where you're like, holy crap, are we going to make it? And the people that are feeling that right now, like that is not me. You're not cut out for this. Like you just have to wake up tomorrow morning and be able to do another day. And then you are cut out for it if you want it. I think we, and especially when you're in a boom and like everybody's company is worth $10 billion and money's raining and everybody's friend just got rich. I think it's a little hard to remember this shit is really hard. And anybody who's done it successfully has had more dark days than they've had positive days in it. And that would be my only words of advice is um, don't just read the headlines and think that you're different. Uh, everybody, everybody's navigating it and 
you can if you can wake up and put a positive face on the next day, you're you're likely going to be able to be able to win over a long period of time. I love it. Well, thank you for joining me. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that whole premise is why YPO was created in the first place, right? Because uh, running a company is not easy. And I think a lot of people look at it being like, oh, wow, you know, those people are so fortunate that they run these successful businesses. But, you know, it's not easy. So I really appreciate you and um, enjoy Florida. And I can't wait to see you soon. Yes, I'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at BetsRecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies. 